Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Tailoring in Conversation. In this series, I'll be talking to tailors from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. If you're a tailor or you're interested in tailoring and you've enjoyed the videos on this channel so far, please subscribe as we are working on some very exciting content for the worldwide tailoring community. Moving on to our guest for today, Francis Owl, lawyer by day, bespoke tailor by night. Let's go. Francis, I've been looking forward to this conversation and uh, I should start by thanking you and asking you how you're doing today. Well, first of all, thank you, Reza. I'm, I'm really glad that we've finally been able to meet, at least virtually. And uh, I really admire your passion and some of the work that you've been doing on YouTube. So it's great to sit down. Um, I'm doing well. Um, I'm keeping busy with my full-time job um, as a lawyer, but I'm finding as much time as I can to do tailoring. Well, I, I, I will ask you about that because I've got tons of questions uh, around that. But first question, if, if, you, if, if you've already guessed, first question that I always ask uh, the guests is, who were you at 10 years old? If me and you were friends, which one of my friends would you be? Yeah, that's an interesting question because as I've sort of followed you on, on Instagram and YouTube, I've picked up on some of your interests and I, I think we'd have a few things in common as a 10-year-old. I mean, I'll just say as a 10-year-old, my biggest focuses were probably sports um, and um, doing things with my hand in, in detail and miniature, some sketching as a kid. Uh, so, you know, building um, trains and layouts and things in the tiniest little details. Um, so, you know, playing with Legos um, or even just discussing some intellectual topics. You know, I, I think any one of those things could have been something that we would have spent time together doing. Yeah, for sure, man. Lego would be one of them and building miniature, miniature anything that was miniature related, I, I was into as well. Um, what, did you have like uh, a natural inclination towards those things or did you have support and encouragement from, from your peers and your parents? Yeah, so I, I had a natural inclination to it. So that's just what I was passionate about and wanted to spend time doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I will note that on both sides of my family, um, there were a lot of craftsmen and artisans or just people who were very skilled. Like my father, for example, mm -hmm. he's a mechanical engineer. And so that's how his mind works. And that's something I almost uh, did professionally. Mm -hmm. um, but he he would woodwork. He would fix the house like he you know um just did everything to fix the house rather than pay someone else to do it and my uncles had similar skills um they would make these uh model ships in miniature they would mm -hmm. carve wood you know carve birds out of wood um very very artistic family on both sides mm -hmm. and so i think i sort of inherited something there and then i just had it growing up watching them working with them I developed that sort of passion for handcrafted things mm -hmm. and just an attention to detail. I think I just naturally always had that and, and very, very blessed to have that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of it's probably just skills that I have and just the environment that I grew up in. So what, what made you choose law instead of mechanical engineering? <laughs> well, so I didn't come from a family of lawyers or anything, very blue collar family. Um, but I just uh, always had a fascination uh, for the law and how it orders society and orders people's lives and sort of just how important it was and how for millennia, many great thinkers have have uh, been involved in that profession and developing that philosophy. And something about that was just very stimulating to my mind. And so from a young age, I couldn't quite explain why, but uh, I liked the idea um, mm -hmm. of being involved in the law. It's very intellectually challenging, and I thought that I could do good uh, mm -hmm. through the law. So, you know, I went to, to college, university, and kind of had that in the back of my mind. And when I graduated, I thought, well, let me make sure that's really what I want to do. And people encouraged me to actually work in some capacity in the profession. So I became a paralegal, which is like a mm -hmm. legal assistant to lawyers, and did that for several years before I was like, okay, yes, I will you know, take on debt to go to law school, yeah. uh, lose three years of my life and commit myself to, you know, a challenging profession, uh, one mm -hmm. that keeps you quite busy. 
Mm-hmm. So th- th- it was always in the back of my mind and something was leading me that way. What was your, what's your earliest memory from, from re- remembering that you were interested in law? Like how old were you? What should I imagine age-wise? Probably very young. I mean, I'd have to think about that, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, I can remember being fascinated with it at a young age, like under 10 years old. My eldest brother, um, he was mm-hmm. 10 years older than me. He did mm-hmm. go to law school. He's one of the, the few lawyers in the family. And it was interesting when he could come back from break and sit down and sort of he'd be studying and yeah. explaining some of these concepts. Um, but also I just grew mm-hmm. up, you know, in an environment where um, like I was a Catholic growing up and I understood like the mm-hmm. rubrics of how things are done and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, canon law that was just sort of all in the background and it was kind of fascinating the rationale behind it the way it's administered you know Mm -hmm. so i think there was just always something that kind of kind of captivated me you know the the reason why i ask is because law as you know better than than me of course is is a very complicated thing and just the, the not just the 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 details and the and the practice itself, but also just the concept of it. It's a very, it's an abstract concept, but at the same time, it's extremely practical and it serves a very very important purpose. Now, the reason why I ask you how old you were when you were interested is, did you as a child have the same understanding, roughly, um, about law, like the concept of law, as you do now? Is is ha- I mean, I cannot imagine a six-year-old sitting be there like, yeah, law is really important for society for this, this, and this reason. So, <laughs> so, and, but you, you do mention that part of it was, you know, looking up to your older brother, you, you see how he does and in the community around you. But what part did it really speak to you as a child? Yeah, well, certainly I understand it differently now because like you say it is a very complex subject and a lot of my peers um when they've been asked like why did you go to law school what's one reason you become a lawyer some of them articulated as well i like working with puzzles um Mm -hmm. or it's very intellectually stimulating or i like writing and advocacy so and and, but they are very complex topics that i knew very little about as as a young boy i think it just developed over time people who are lawyers and sort of understanding uh, what it is that they do. And then when I was a paralegal before law school, like I was reading a lot on the side to understand mm-hmm. what was going on. So it, it was certainly a process. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that, that sort of uh, parallels sort of how I got into to tailoring. It was like, I see this as something that's very complex, but I want to figure it out and do it. And so I just invested a lot of time in it. Right, right. Now I'm going to ask the obvious question. Um, when, how, and why did you move towards tailoring? I mean, you're st- you're still a lawyer. You you, you practice. Uh, it's not something that y- you once did. Uh, you're doing both at the same time. You're you're a tailor um, and a lawyer. Please tell us the story. <laughs> yes. So it began um, before law school. Like I said, when I was working as a paralegal, and I had to start you know, buying some clothes to, to dress professionally. I mean, it was business casual for the most part. So mm-hmm. I had to spend some money doing that. And over time, I just developed some frustration with not being able to find something that fit or was it something I was looking for? You know, I was going to sort of all the discount places and trying to find what was available. And um, so I was a little frustrated with that. And then I was paying someone to, to, you know, alter it, but there was only so much they could do and that was expensive. And so I thought, well, maybe I can start by hemming pants and taking in the waist and those sorts of things to save some money. Um, and then really, I think the catalyst to getting into it was I discovered on YouTube an older series on how to make a coat right. by Rory Duffy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and I I had used a sewing machine when I was younger to like make some like like army costumes or or things of that kind. My mom would let me use it, so I had like some exposure to that. And I thought to myself, hmm, um, I have a very technical mind. Like I said, mm-hmm. I thought about doing mechanical engineering like my father, and I think very much that way. I learned a lot from him, 
and I was and I'm very good at reverse engineering things. Mm -hmm. And so I just was paying very close attention, watching those videos over and over again. And I thought, you know what, I I could try to do this. And so, you know, I and I started finding some old like digitized tailoring books and just, you know, through trial and error kind of got started. You know, what I was doing at first was not great, um, mm -hmm. but I persisted. And so now I guess I would say about seven or eight years later, you know, I've come mm -hmm. a long way. Okay. But it was really I, I just wanted to dress well, not in any fancy way. I just wanted to dress well and look like something fit me. And I wanted to have, you know, the autonomy over uh, what material it was and how it was designed and something mm -hmm. you know, along those lines. So <laughs> that's how I got into it. It's a little intense and I, and I had to do a lot of work myself because I've never been formally trained. So mm -hmm. I've invested a lot of time in tailoring. Oh yes, that's for sure. How, so you never had anyone teaching you at all? No, I, with the exception of a four hour trouser cutting course that I did right. with Ian McMillan. Yeah. We okay. did that, I think over Skype and that was yeah. when I was still trying to figure out just some basic trouser pattern that I was satisfied with. So yeah, he's yeah. helped me a lot over the years too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. I see. And so how, I mean, how much time did you have to spend um, in the tailoring part for the tailoring part? And how much time did you spend, you know, for, for your day job as to say, how did you, what was the mm -hmm. balance really? Because you can't learn tailoring in five minutes. You've spent what some serious it? time, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got to be thousands of hours over the years. <laughs> um, well, so it's the balance has changed over time. So before mm -hmm. law school as a paralegal, I would be busy at times, mm -hmm. but sometimes it could be a 40-hour work week. And, you know, there were times when I was single, times when I was dating. So when, when it was like a 40-hour work week, and it wasn't like dating or something, like I, I poured a lot of time into that. And so it was probably like at least 20 hours a week of some sort of trial and error or um, going on Instagram or YouTube and just studying how other people do it, finding old books, you know, perusing cutting forums and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. that was a better balance at the time. But then I went to law school and still did a fair amount of tailoring as much as I could in law school. But law school is uh, very intense. Uh, at least if you're, you know, taking it seriously. Um, so it declined over time. So, I mean, I probably spent 80 hours a week on school, whether it was going to class or studying or writing something. I mean, it wasn't maybe always that much each week, but it was substantial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also trying to live a life with friends. Um, and then in my free time, you know, maybe 10 to 15 hours a week or less, you know, yeah. having that for tailoring. And, you know, then I, you know, finished law school and I've had some um, pretty demanding jobs, um, mm -hmm. you know, for the last couple of years. So it's less and less time, but, I, but I'm determined to sort of carve it out. And uh, fortunately, uh, my girlfriend supports that and I'm starting to do some stuff for her. So mm -hmm. <laughs> she <Yeah>. understands. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, what I'm thinking about and what, what strikes me as very interesting is that you seem to be pretty serious with what you're pursuing, whether it's law or tailoring. And what I'd like to know is that if you have very limited time, let's say you have a 70 hour or 60 hour work week and you've managed to find like 10 hours in that week to do some of your sewing. You don't have a teacher. You're relying on your, your intellect and your capabilities of reverse engineering and thinking the technique through. Clearly, not always does it go from A to B to C. Sometimes you start at A, you get stuck, and that's your 10 hours gone for the week. Uh, I can imagine that that's extremely frustrating if you only have a few amount of hours and you don't move forward as smoothly as you would want to. Mm. What I would think, like, I would get the feeling like, okay, I'm either going to change to become a tailor to do this like to have more time for this or I am going to deal with it at some in some way or I'm just going to leave it and I'm just going to focus on law. How did you deal with that problem? How did you manage to balance that out so that you don't go mad basically? 
Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I guess I would sort of chalk it up to just passion for both of those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I have to, to find some gainful employment. And I think my first passion always has been the law. Um, mm-hmm. And it's worked out fairly well for me. And, and that has to be something that sustains many other aspects of my life. So, you know, yes. yeah, you have to be committed to it. And I enjoy it. So, you know, that's easy enough to sort of focus your mental energy. Yeah. With tailoring, it's just, I have to just, again, put it down to the passion for it mm-hmm. with the the practical effects, right? So I will need suits and other things to wear. And so, yes, mm-hmm. I don't have as much time to dedicate to it. You know, I, I wish I could probably spend, you know, five or six times as much time on it every week um, mm-hmm. than I really can. Um, but I, I, I want, I, I see this as a long-term project. So mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm at a point where I'm very happy with what I produce, but I know that with each suit that I make, it's better and better still. That's mm-hmm. the sort of phase I'm in now. Yeah. And I just want to keep pushing that, even if it takes years, because I'll get better at it, I'll get faster at it, and it'll just mm-hmm. be so satisfying when it's done. And mm-hmm. there's the added benefit of being able to wear the things you make or to make them for others. Um, so, you know, I realize that one has to have priority over the other. Um, Mm -hmm. at least right now. Um, But I I think it's the love for it, the passion that just kind of keeps me pushing with both. Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself start a tailoring company or business at any time in your future? A lot of people have asked me that. So people I've worked with over the years, a lot of DC lawyers are like, well, are you you going to start a business? I mean, could could you make one for me? Mm -hmm. And I always just sort of uh, just said, well, maybe, maybe. But I, I don't happening in the foreseeable future simply because that would take an extraordinary amount of work, as you well know, mm-hmm. to formulate a business plan, to do all of that yourself. I would be doing all the work myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure what sort of market there is for bespoke tailoring in DC. There's a small handful, mm-hmm. but my experience has been, um, that you have a lot of government lawyers um, mm-hmm. and other people who don't really want to spend the money, or I think generally Americans don't truly appreciate um, uh, bespoke tailoring. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it, will I open a bit? It would just require some real stability uh, to it. And, you know, right now I still have that great passion for the law. So, mm-hmm. you know, not at this time. Makes sense. Um, what did, what did you find the most difficult thing about tailoring when you were learning, or as or anything that you're working on now? What doesn't matter. What do you think is some of the most difficult things? So I think that I, I'm very skilled with my hands, and so the technical aspects of it can be challenging at first. Mm-hmm. But you're able to see how other tailors do it because they share their work online and things like that. Um, and so I'm able. Uh, to see that and to practice that and get better at it. One of the biggest challenges for me was perfecting the art of pattern drafting and fitting because Mm -hmm. I've had no one to teach me that from the ground up. And that's a real art. And I have, you know, obviously old books on how these sorts of things are done, but Mm -hmm. that's just something that's really hard to figure out on your own. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have a lot of clients coming through where I learn better how to, to fit and have the eye for it. So that has been uh, one of the bigger challenges because I feel like I'm proficient, pretty proficient, technically speaking. But mm-hmm. it's sort of the other aspects um, of design that mm-hmm. I'm still working on. Why do you why do you think that that's the case? Because um, I, I agree with you that pattern cutting and fitting is something that... Uh, it's probably one of the most difficult things within the the profession. Um, And what's weird for me, and it's very strange, is that tailoring is is not invented yesterday. We've been making clothes for, for, you know, years and years. And why is it so that there there still isn't a very formalized system that you could use you could exactly get the the fitting routine incorporated into it and get to a result. Like, how is it that it's still not systematized to that degree? Whereas we have more complicated technologies, don't we? 
Sure, sure. Well, I mean, at least from my perspective, I don't have the access to the technology. That's, that's sort of something I've never thought about. But maybe it's because of the development of different systems and different mm-hmm. houses of uh, cutting, right? You know, different houses have different styles. Um, and I've never, you know, learned those. But I suppose when you master one, it'd be easy to learn another. But everyone has their own sort of take on how to cut a suit. Mm-hmm. The problem I've had is that, mm-hmm. you know, I've collected uh, a, a vast array of digitized tailoring books, but they all have different systems. And some of them are obviously very old and things have yeah. changed since then. And so the the difficulty for me is trying to synthesize that into something that is sort of my style and that is uh, more simplified and just trying to, to bring all of that information together in one place. I mean, I don't know anyone that's that's really done that. Everyone approaches it slightly differently. So it depends on who you know and who you're observing and who you're reading from. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of my perspective on it. Um, what's going through these books that you've been going through, um, what sort of impression do you get from the, the tail, our tailoring and st- ancestors what what sort of impression do you get from those books uh, obviously if you read about like the development of uh some other thing i don't know whatever you know furniture you know you get one impression <laughs> you know reading about tailors and tailoring books and all of that what kind of impression do you get about our historical ancestors in in, in this trade well wh- one one thing i notice is just that it's amazing how much survives until today. Um, mm-hmm. I think they were very interested in, at least when some of these books were being written in the 30s and 40s, when you know, there were plenty of apprenticeships to go around, uh, they were still invested in somehow documenting these things and mm-hmm. passing them along to future generations. And I've always been quite impressed with uh, the community of tailors on Instagram where they are very collaborative and, and share their work and support each other. And so I, I think I kind of see that almost on the written page. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the, also that that passion and technical precision mm-hmm. and, you know, discussions about how at least one perspective on how you should do this thing. Um, mm-hmm. to, to me, I see that as uh, a real commitment to quality and, and excellence and, and producing the best product that they can. Um, so I think in a lot of ways that that continues today. Um, that was a couple things I've noticed. Yeah, 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 yeah. What now? So you you mentioned what you found the most difficult thing in tailoring. What did you find the most difficult thing in law, or what do you still find the difficult most difficult thing? There's a, there's a there's a lot of difficult things that you have aware <clears throat> that you need to work through. Um, for me personally, it's managing all the things that are going on. Mm-hmm. So obviously you have to learn how to be a good legal researcher, for example. You need to, to find the relevant cases and authorities, and sometimes quickly. You need to be able to write very well. You need to be able to think analytically and reason and make a persuasive argument to some. So those are all skills that are developed over the period of time, and no one ever like truly masters them with nothing more to learn or develop. But I think for me, all of those things come at once as a young lawyer. And so you're trying to invest enough time in each to keep all of those skills progressing mm-hmm. um, while meeting just the various demands of, of, of clients um, or your colleagues um, and balancing that with your life. It's, it's trying to, to be disciplined, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's that's kind of the biggest challenge because I have skills in all those areas. I'm, I'm still a young lawyer, a long way to go, but you have to do them all at once, and that, that's that's challenging. Mm-hmm. If you if you had to choose three skills that you would say, if you don't have them or you don't develop them, you're never going to be a successful lawyer. What was what would those three skills be? I think one is communication. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be able to work with others and your clients um, mm-hmm. and build up a relationship with them, be able to communicate all of the important aspects of a case to them and, and you know, 
have a successful back and forth discussion about things. Mm -hmm. And the same with if you're in court and trying to communicate to a judge, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why your argument should prevail. You have to find a way to communicate that persuasively. So I would say Mm -hmm. communication, um, certainly hard work, um, even if you're sort of one of the most intelligent lawyers out there, you're still going to have to work hard to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you just have to put in that time and that effort. There's no real cutting corners to become a really successful mm-hmm. lawyer. When you say um, working hard, how do you define working hard as a lawyer? What exactly do you mean by that? I think that would be putting in uh, a reasonable amount of time that's mm-hmm. required by any particular project mm-hmm. and giving it your focus while you're working on it and doing your best, something to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. Um, not passing off things to others, uh, mm-hmm. not sort of cutting a corner with, say, legal research and be like, well, I think I've looked at enough cases. I mm-hmm. won't quite <laughs> look at the, the last few ones um, or just just giving in to other pressures, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and not doing your best on a given assignment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just putting in the, the blood, sweat and tears, right, to a reasonable extent. I mean, you could kill yourself doing it, but that's not reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, so communication, I think hard work and I think finding fulfillment. So you, you can have a reasonable amount of success in a particular area of law, but if you don't ultimately find that fulfilling, it's going to make it a lot more difficult to continue to pursue that type of work or to advance your career or to be, you know, committed to a client or, you know, Mm -hmm. a colleague. I think you have to find a way to to find fulfillment in your work or choo- choose a different type of work so that mm-hmm. you feel that fulfillment, you feel committed, you feel motivated, you feel like you're doing something not only for your clients, but for society as a whole. If, if you don't have that, you're not going mm-hmm. to enjoy being a lawyer. Um, you're not going to feel satisfied about your career path. So mm-hmm. I, I, I would offer those those three observations. Do you, do you think... I find the last one extremely fascinating. Do you f- think that being able to f- to find fulfillment in any given task that you do and really doing it in a way that you're giving your very best, do you think that's a skill or do you think that's a na- something just naturally within the, the individual? I, th- I think that's more an act of the will. Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, maybe, like, I don't think you have, well, you might have natural interests or passions in a particular area, Mm -hmm. but you still have to will to pursue those. You have to will to do your best to -hmm. achieve whatever ends you're seeking. Um, so I don't think it's any sort of innate characteristic necessarily. Um, this is just something that you have to, you have to develop your character and your virtues and decide, mm-hmm. you know, this is something I want to pursue and this is how I have to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I, I really think that's more of an act of the will than anything else. I mean, that's informed obviously by passions and, and by experiences in your life and, you know, perhaps having experience in one area of the law and you said, that's really fulfilling. You know, I helped, um, you know, this person in a pro bono matter and I'd like to do more of that um, mm-hmm. and try and try to think about, okay, how can I accomplish that? Because I, I feel that it's, um, it's striking some deep chord uh, in my heart. So, mm-hmm. but more than anything, I think that, that, that again, you have to, you have to decide that you want to do something, think about the best way to achieve it and go from there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's something I did also with tailoring, right? You know, I, I sort of had a, an innate passion for it and I, and there was a practical reason for it. And I decided, okay, I'm going to spend a lot of a lot of time researching this and practicing this in order to achieve some goal that might even be in the long term future. Like it took me several years to make a suit I was not self conscious about when I was wearing it because I could think about the imperfections because I knew where it was. Um, uh, so, so it was the same sort of process, mm-hmm. and, and and the same with you know other aspects of your life. I think, you know. If, if, you know, I think of my parents, for example, like they wanted 
to, you know, have a good family life and raise a family. And I, I'm, I'm one of seven. And uh, so they had to, you know, through the act of love and determination, like will to raise a good family and will to succeed at that. Um, mm-hmm. But they were passionate about doing that to begin with. They thought they were sort of led or called that way. So mm-hmm. things things might point you in that way, but you really have to sit down and think, how can I do this? What characteristics or virtues do I have to develop to achieve that? And, mm-hmm. you know, what is the end of all this? Do you think that, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a big challenge to raise seven kids that's uh you know i mean people people of our age uh already struggle with having like one or two so seven is is a big deal um do you think that you know this 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 will that that one has does it start with having a very intense passion for life whatever life means you think I think so. I think you have to have this passion for living a good life mm-hmm. or um, finding that sense of fulfillment in life by doing things mm-hmm. and having some concept of the purpose for which you do those things, the end for which you do those things. Uh, I mean, th- th- t- yes, to, ha- to have a purpose in life, you have to think about these bigger questions. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, every person at some point has to sort of address these questions in their own mind. And like, I'm doing what, what am I striving towards? You know, what, what is sort of my end, my destiny, you know, and then how do all the pieces fall into place? You know, and when you take mm-hmm. a step back from, from the big picture question and think about concrete actions in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I can imagine that how your, uh, your skills in law can help you in tailoring. Um, did you learn anything in tailoring that helped you in law? Ooh, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, hmm. per- Perhaps a few, I think maybe one. So I, I know you've talked about this with other people and it's, it's something that tailors talk about a lot is you have to find a way to deal with repetition, mm-hmm. but not allow that to sort of sour your passion for what you're doing in tailoring or not just do it mindlessly. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are times where there's a lot of repetition in law. And so in both areas, you know, probably starting more with tailoring um, mm-hmm. because I was doing that before I was practicing lawyer. Um, you have to find ways to think big picture. Okay, yes, this might be tedious, um, but it needs to be done as part of this broader project. And it needs to be done well. And the same sort of is true um, as a practicing lawyer. You're going to do some mundane things. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I did a lot of these as a paralegal. Where you're not a lawyer. You're like putting together binders of documents for another lawyer to review. Um, mm-hmm. But I was starting to practice then. That was around the time I was starting to tailor where it's like, okay, but, but I'm going to do this well. And I'm going to try to understand the bigger picture, like where it fits in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's sort of a skill that has transferred back to, to the legal profession. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is um, being persistent and diligent and, and determined to succeed because tailoring, again, starting from scratch with no formal training, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I have a yes. lot of, lot of sweat and tears shed, and I think that with mastering anything in life, that's necessary. And the law is very challenging, very complex, very demanding. But mm-hmm. if you've been practicing for a while in other areas of your life with putting in the effort and being determined to succeed, that sort of helped me too as a as a young practicing lawyer, where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm being asked to do this. I really don't know much about this, and so I got to spend mm-hmm. extra time like figuring it out. Um, and getting done what I need to get done. And just mm-hmm. knowing that each of these things is a step to becoming a more successful lawyer, a more well-rounded lawyer. Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's just, you have to put in the time. You have to put in the time. There's there's no cutting corners. Mm. So th- this might, <laughs> might be a couple aspects of tailoring that sort of echo in lawyering. Mm-hmm. Which one would you say has has been 
emotionally the most demanding? Challenges in law or challenges in tailoring? I, I would have to say the law, but that might mm -hmm. be because I'm not doing tailoring full time. You know, uh, sure. I, I watch plenty of you who do, and that's really the bread and butter of what you do. And so it needs to it needs to succeed. You need to succeed. You need to figure out how to fix problems that are holding you back. I mean, I think mm -hmm. of you trying to start uh, your own business. I can only imagine all the thing, all the obstacles that you have to keep overcoming. Mm -hmm. um, but the legal profession is very demanding. Um, you know, it's it's not only hours, but the the sort of uh, high level intellectual challenges. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm just a baby lawyer. I, I need to figure these things out. I need to do really good work to continue, you know, to thrive at my particular firm. It's it's very challenging, and and it's really what sustains many other areas of my life. It's 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 my profession. So mm -hmm. I I have to make sure that I am succeeding there. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. that's. A little emotionally draining. Yes, I can, but, I can but perfectly also, imagine. But but also rewarding and fulfilling because you know as you make steps and as you continue to to succeed in in small ways, you know that you're you're going somewhere and that you just you need to continue on that path. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I one thing I wanted to ask you a, a few minutes ago was that uh, how much of being a lawyer has to do with visual presence and and how you manage to present the case and how much of it is related to how strong your case actually is. I mean, I know this can be a tricky uh, question, but to answer, but I'm curious to know what you what you would say. I I think it's always both. So let's let's first take the case where. You think you have a good case where sort of the law is in your favor, mm -hmm. um, but you still need to communicate that to a, a judge, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to show that, yes, the law is on our side, the facts are on our side, and this is why mm -hmm. our client should be entitled to a, a favorable result. So even when you have a good case, if you don't do a good job of of communicating that to whoever you're attempting to persuade, mm -hmm. you could lose. Um, mm -hmm. But then the same is true on the other side where you might have a bad case where there's not a lot of law in your favor. Mm -hmm. From the advocacy perspective, because you have to come up with persuasive arguments and try to say, okay, yes, there are some difficulties you know, candidly, perhaps admit to the judge, yes, this case isn't good for us, but mm -hmm. here's why we think that we should still prevail here. I mean, that mm -hmm. that's a real art. Um, and so I, I think you always have to be attentive to both. Mm -hmm. But the balance of the two might might be different depending on what case you have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, here's a weird, I don't know if it's a weird question, but you mentioned that communication is very, very important. It's maybe one of the, I mean, you, you, that's the first thing you mentioned. Now, I'm curious, do you think that if someone is very skilled at communicating an idea or a thought or be, just be persu persuasive in a, in a positive way, do you think that that helps them to communicate with themselves in, in moments of difficulty and in moments of, Let's say when when you don't know if you have the will to continue doing this difficult task, um, or do you think that that's completely separate? No, I I think that the two can be related because you know um, sometimes when I'm there, there's an area of law called appellate advocacy where perhaps you lose before the trial judge, but you appeal that case and three mm -hmm. other judges kind of look at it and, and, and you're trying to reverse what happened with the trial court. And you have to write these briefs, you know, written briefs that are presenting your case and arguing, mm -hmm. you know, per, trying to persuade the judges they should adopt your position. And sometimes you do a little bit of oral argument. So you stand in front of the judges and you mm -hmm. actually argue based on, on those briefs. But it, the process of doing that is it involves um, the process of introspection and reflection on your own arguments and their weaknesses mm -hmm. and trying to 
um, either anticipate those or come up with a response to those. You know, you, you really have to be critical of your own argument, but there's a lot of introspection. And I, and I think sort of the same goes for, uh, you know, other aspects of our daily lives where you have to stop and reflect and think <laughs> about, okay, what's brought me here? What has driven me? Where am I going? What am I trying to achieve? How am I going to do that? Um, how have I acted towards others? Have I fallen short? Do I need to improve in some way? You know, there's just a million different scenarios where you have to reflect on those things. And so I guess th there's a similarity there, mm -hmm. but I suppose when it comes down to it, if I'm like arguing a case, like, yes, I'm doing my best for a client, but at the end of the day, you're going to win or lose and you're going to move on. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, other aspects of your daily life can be far far more important right? mm -hmm. so uh, yeah. more critical and, and require more reflection um so mm -hmm. yeah i'm always fascinated by that because uh, you know half of the communication we have throughout the days or maybe even more i don't know what what the, the the measures are but a lot of it is with ourselves and some of it is done formally when you're writing something like you say you're reflecting your own thoughts you're looking at them maybe two days later and you're like what did i write that did i think that but some of it is also just in the background. And, and, and there is, I mean, from what I experienced and still experience, there is really a need to be able to convince yourself sometimes you're on the right track or you're not on the right track. And uh, you have some sort of a battle with yourself. You know, do I need to do this? Yes, for this reason. No, you shouldn't do this. Stop immediately. And, and I don't know if, if communication skills directly impact that and that it's exactly um like 100 percent related to it but um it is it is fascinating nonetheless um you mentioned something about well it, yeah yeah please go it, on if i could just uh, yeah say something for a second that that's one reason i appreciate some of the work that you've done so you've communicated very well um through youtube instagram certain processes for doing something, but you've mm -hmm. also talked about um, considering different perspectives and mm -hmm. thinking, if, is there a better way to do this? Is there a better mm -hmm. way to improve? And so mm -hmm. I, I've, I've scooped that up. I, I really love that aspect of the things you've done because, you know, as someone who's never been trained, I've mm -hmm. seen someone do it, maybe even several people do something some way, mm -hmm. but I maybe didn't stop and think, can I do this better? And mm -hmm. so you forced me to do that. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe I'm a rookie, so I'm just following what other people are doing. But actually now maybe I should be thinking about different ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, well, so it's, it's, I'm very happy that you, you mentioned this because um, it's not obvious to me whether someone who is being trained professionally can work things out better than someone who hasn't been trained professionally. And... I sometimes get the idea that the more you start out with rules, you know, and 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 principles and, and they are kind of like thrown at you, the more you may be restricted to think outside of those rules and principles to imagine something either new or better. Because um, I think, and I'd like to know what how, how the process has been for you, but I think that a lot of my thinking within tailoring, uh, whether it's something creative or something technical, came from just not really paying a lot of import, uh, attention to this is how you have to cut a facing or this is how you must make a canvas. You know, usually when people showed me something or they told me how it's done, I really took it with a pinch of salt. And, and that's not to say that I disrespected them or their craft, but... Somehow I thought, well, um, it cannot be a magical rule because today this tailor tells me this. Tomorrow I go to the next tailor and they are kicking me and shouting at me, why the hell are you doing this? This is nonsense. And then you take the both, both techniques that they teach you and you take it to a third tailor and they, they don't even look at you. you know? They don't even consider you a, a professional. So I thought, well, this, this discrepancy... Is saying something. So here's the, 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 the more uh, concrete question to you. Do you think that you would have learned or 
let me formulate this question well. When I look at your work, I can tell this is someone who understand is looking knows what they're looking for. Your 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 work seems to have a, some sort of a, a route that it's following. And when I look at it, I'm like, okay, whoever this is at whatever stage they are, they know what they're looking for because you can tell there is a lot of nice volume. There is not nice nice lines. You know the proportions are kind of like nice. How much of that do you think was due to the fact that you didn't have a formal training? Yeah, so I, I figured this is what you were getting at. And I, mm -hmm. I do think that from my perspective as an amateur who just had to, you know, look around and try to learn somehow that I felt like I was duty bound to follow one particular way. I mean, sometimes it was the case when I was trying to figure out how to do pockets. I would mm -hmm. be seeing people do it the same way again and again, and that's all I knew. And so that's how I started doing it. But then tailoring books and, and other people started to open that up. And so I, I do think that I've benefited from the fact that I never felt like mm -hmm. I owed any sort of duty of loyalty or anything to uh, mm -hmm. a master um, or just something that had been drilled into me because I'm constantly changing the way I do things. Yeah. So I, I don't sort of feel that anchoring effect from having had training or working in a particular tailoring house or anything. That, that's, that's, I think, one important perspective, one of the biggest things that I've noticed about what I'm doing, because I'm still, I still have a long way to go with learning things, and I'm still consuming so much content to learn how to do things and do them mm -hmm. different ways. And I, have, I feel a sense of freedom that when I discover something that, that you can see the end result and how someone mm -hmm. did it, and I think, oh, that's better than the way I did it. I'm going to adopt that. So most recently, I just sort of gave up on the felt undercollar, and I did sort of the two-piece cloth <laughs> undercollar. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just, you know, I got to a point where it's like almost everybody uses the felt, and, and, you know, that's fine as far as it goes, but I just want to take something to another level, and Good. it just looks so much better, and I love the craftsmanship and the steps that go into it, and so I was like... Yeah well, this is my new way of doing something. So mm -hmm. I, I, I never felt an anchoring effect. I always felt the freedom to do, um, mm -hmm. to improve the way I make something always. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I realize that can be different for a lot of people who have trained. You know, it's I completely agree with that. And it's fascinating to me because it's, it's still too complicated for me to really uh, understand it because uh, not to get on a, not to get too philosophical about it, but um, there was this quote from Bruce Lee, and he said that the best style is no style. And, you know, you can interpret that obviously in a few ways, but maybe you have practiced so many styles that you're now like, like fluid between them. And so you can just choose the right style at the right moment. But there is this completely different aspect here that you don't know anything, but because you don't know anything, your mind is so open that you can uh, come up with like the weirdest concepts and theories. And some of them may actually work. I mean, most of them are probably going to be like flawed, but because uh, you, you need to have some okay. sort of a foundation. But um, sometimes you come up with things and you're like, well, why didn't anyone for the last 200 years think of this? And and so it's, it's, it's kind of like related um, you said that you you weren't sure about the market in Washington D.C. for tailoring. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't. I'm not sure what the market exactly is in the United States because most of the American clients, uh, or most of the clients on Savile Row and within London, are international clients, and I, I would say about like maybe sixty percent of them are from America. Yeah. Very large clientele. Yeah. Now. Why do you think that if there are so many American cli uh, clients uh, in in a place like uh, the UK, um, why is the United States not booming from from with tailoring mm -hmm. companies and tailoring shops? What's what do you think about that? Well, so so I'm no expert on sort of how this developed, but my own sort of suspicion is this. Um, you know, there was a time, I think, in the United States when, when there were a lot of hand tailors. 
Yes. But then eventually the the ready to wear market took over. I don't know if it was in the post-war period or, or thereabouts. Um, and that was more affordable um, and it really took off. And so I think that, you know, the United States slowly lost an appreciation for something that was handmade. And we tend to buy things elsewhere, made elsewhere. Um, mm. So I think that started to sort of recede. And, you know, just jumping ahead to today, there aren't a lot of places that people in the U.S. like myself can learn how to do this. I mean, mm. I've thought about going to the Savile Row Academy, for example. I just I can't do that. But I would. Mm -hmm. but, but those are the places that I have, would have to go to learn this. And so there's just so few true bespoke tailoring shops left that it's a handful of people that are that mm -hmm. are learning that trade from a master. I mean, I know a lot of these tailors don't even take apprentices these days. Mm -hmm. So there's just there, there's no sort of future for it. And I know there's a few tailors in the U.S. who are trying to change that. Mm -hmm. But there, we, we've lost that appreciation for a handmade suit. I think the people who still in the United States who still appreciate it are now accustomed to the, the traveling tailors coming to the United States, you know, from Savile Row, who make some of the best yeah. stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And so they go to them or they, they travel to the UK. And for the most part, I think that probably captures the bespoke market. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm sure that over time, um, you know, peop, more and more people in the United States could learn to appreciate and decide to invest in bespoke. But, but I think there is a limited market. And just from my perspective in D.C., I mean, you have a lot of government staffers, uh, government lawyers. I mean, they, they don't have the means to go out and mm -hmm. buy expensive suits. And, you know, they, they don't have they haven't developed the appreciation for that sort of thing. That, that's, that was sort of why I said, I, I'm not sure that there's a big market in D.C., but to the extent that there is, you mm -hmm. have uh, a lot of people from Savile Row traveling and meeting those needs. Um, so I, I just think that we've lost something in the United States and appreciation for fine tailor clothing. I, I see signs that uh, younger men especially are, are starting to appreciate menswear more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the death of the suit was premature. Um, and, and we might be moving more in that direction um, but it's it's just I, there's a big difference I've noticed between the United States, for example, and how, you know, most men will approach dressing um, and the UK, where there's like this long tradition mm -hmm. that's been like maintained, that's ongoing. And you maybe learn from your father or you, or someone else mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. oh, yes, a bespoke suit is something that's of quality, you know, and worth investing in. And mm -hmm. and and here's like a, a very traditional way of of attiring yourself. So mm -hmm. the, 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 those are just sort of my general observations. I, I haven't thought about that very deeply, but the, mm -hmm. a few things I've noticed. So w could you say that uh, the fact that there are tailors traveling to the States from whatever country, uh, just the fact that they are, they are traveling to the States is actually in some way maybe bad for the tailoring industry within the States because it paralyzes no. the clientele or in what way? No, no, no. I, I wouldn't say that because um, I think there are lots of other people who would, you know, dip their toes in the bespoke mm -hmm. tailoring market and would like to have something made on a quicker turnaround because, mm -hmm. you know, traveling tailors come, what, three times a year. I mean, yeah. and you want to build up that relationship with someone. And it's nice to be able to be in the same city as your tailor, right? I, I think there's certainly enough of a market out there. I don't think captured by the traveling tailors not at all but i just think mm -hmm. that the the challenge right now is convincing people that mm -hmm. a bespoke suit is worth it you know a, a true bespoke suit um because you know there's obviously cost that goes into it but that cost reflects all the the effort and the quality that goes into it and i just think it's hard in a very um sort of cheap commercialized culture you know uh mm -hmm. convincing them that like you should buy you should invest in something that's handcrafted that will last. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's sort of, the, I, I think that's the challenge right now. Okay. Um, we're, in the United States, we're, we, we like to consume cheap things <laughs> and then they wear out and we get another one. Well, that's, that's, that is a tr serious, I think the whole world is struggling with that because uh, I don't know exactly whether it's to do with, um, you know, external forces and influences, you know, people really f 
too many people trying to sell you too many things and so it becomes a battle of the prices without the 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 average consumer being able to distinguish the difference in the quality um it's for me it's interesting to see where the tailoring industry goes at at the point where all the suits have reached pretty much the same quality i am i the question for me is yeah. if all suits had the same quality what would be the most important thing in tailoring then i think and i've heard you talk about this before i think i think one of the things is the relationship with the tailor mm -hmm. um because again going back to you know sort of our top our discussion of communication mm -hmm. like it's a real skill in taking on a new client being able to communicate them with them understand what they want explain mm -hmm. what you know you can do or what you're willing to do and working with them throughout the process of mm -hmm, fittings mm -hmm. to achieve something that they're really that they're really going to to be happy with mm -hmm. but so so i think it's that relation relational aspect of of the spoke tailoring but also i think it's it's probably the openness to being creative that would mm -hmm. set someone apart i think because you know maybe all suits are of the same quality Mm -hmm. But they'll more or less fall into the same general style mm -hmm. um, with the same general details, right? Yeah. You know? And so it, 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 is there something that you can do that's extra unique or extra special for mm -hmm. that particular person that you have as a client? And mm -hmm. I think of a, a lot of sort of the creative conceptual things that you've done. That That's, mm -hmm. you know, one way to look at it. But I think it's it's just showing your passion and your willingness to be creative and do something a little different than no one else has done. Mm -hmm. Because if the, if that client, you know, didn't find you and they went to someone else, uh, maybe that other person wouldn't be invested in, in trying to be creative mm -hmm. and coming up with, you know, very personalized aspects of, of a suit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, are you ready for a speed round? <laughs> uh, yeah okay <laughs> all right okay um let's see the ready-to-wear market necessary mm -hmm. but not the pinnacle right reverse engineering my method your method okay okay communication essential what would you say is the most important thing within communication building that relationship with the person you're communicating with mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think yeah if you had to do everything you've done so far within tailoring again from scratch what what would be the the one thing that you have you would have fundamentally done differently? Uh, I think I would have taken more time mm -hmm. to read and right. and to come up with a system before actually jumping in and cutting and sewing. Mm -hmm. What well, you know, really, really doing my, my due diligence. <laughs> yeah, my, my research and being like, okay, there's all these books, there's different styles. I don't mm -hmm. quite understand what this draft means. I need to actually like read through the whole thing, understand the big picture concept, mm -hmm. and then think about all the steps that follow. What cloth, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, what the measurements are, you know, sort of what aspects, of, like details, what pockets, things like that, working, and then just practicing all of mm -hmm. like the basic stitches and, and, and making practice pockets and all of that before yeah, yeah. jumping straight into it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it saves you some fabric there. <laughs> um, some precious <laughs> fabric sometimes. Okay. Um, facts. The basis on which we make decisions. The basis on which we make decisions. Interesting. Craftsmanship. Art. Art. N next one is art versus technique. If I had to choose, I would say technique. I'm a very detail-oriented, precise person. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they're, they're both essential. 
But do you think, do you believe that technique can, um, technique can make art possible in the first place? Or do you think that they're not really? Wait, yes. And I would say that technique itself is an art. So you're, mm -hmm. like, you're not necessarily shortchanging it, but it's, it's like, again, the, the little pieces, the stitches that are holding together this broader aim of making something that's beautiful, something that's artistic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, tailoring in the U.S. Um, needs, needs work, needs development, growth. Mm -hmm, growth, okay, needs development. All right, competition. a challenge to to do better myself to succeed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. late nights <laughs> very frequent <laughs> i can imagine um here is an interesting one is the suit and in really an investment or actually a more of a liability well I, from my perspective, this is more of an investment, um, not so much a liability. I, I, I guess you mean that in terms of, well, you know, what if something happens to it or it's damaged? I, I don't know if that's what you're getting at. Well, you see a lot of um, tailors say, tell their customers or clients, uh, you know, this suit would be a great investment for you. And I've always found that a bit strange because I think, well... Yes, I can imagine if the client gets some confidence boost out of it or, you know, it, it, it's a good presentation thing. But if you're not a lawyer or someone who is always having to dress up in a suit, um, it may not be really an investment, you know. Uh, so what, what do you think of that? Uh, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, well, no, I mean, I think we all have occasions for wearing a suit and it is an investment from my perspective in the sense that, well, if you're going to have to buy a suit in the first place and you want something to last, you know, this is the reason, and it might have some ancillary benefits, like you feel more confident in it mm -hmm. or you look better and that's how you want to present yourself. There's sort of a language to style and how you're mm -hmm. presenting yourself and what, and what you're saying to another person based on what you dress or how you dress. So like, I, I see that as sort of the investment side. Um, and I think that's valuable even to people who aren't, you know, lawyers who wear, who don't wear suits all that, that often, you're going to have mm -hmm. occasion for it, but, um, you know, it might be more worthwhile mm -hmm. to invest in something of better quality. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that, that's kind of how I conceive of investment when, when you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, that's the last one, the law. <laughs> oh, the law. Um, Order. Order. Are, are, you in, are you yourself a, a very orderly person in your daily life? Uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm trying to get better. I mean, I have discipline, I have order, but I'm trying to tighten that up because I must. <laughs> and, you know, we have, okay. and I, know I, can be a very, I can be a very distracted person. So order mm -hmm. is something that, yes, I'm trying to bring to my own life, not only in how do I go through each day and how do I spend mm -hmm. my time, but where am I going in life? Um, but that what I meant with order and the law is simply that the law is something that orders the relationships of communities and persons, Right. but it also teaches, mm -hmm. it teaches and instructs how that society views um, how certain conduct should occur, like how we should live our lives at some level, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, it, it has that ordering effect, both through like literal commands, and it's instructive function to those who, who live under it. Yes, yes. And I think uh, it tells us a, a lot about ourselves as well. Um, you know, when you compare laws, different countries, and the way they look at law, the concept of law, it tells a lot about uh, human nature, I think, and, and human mm -hmm. desires, maybe even. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that is that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, because you can France, see, you can see. Yeah, please yeah. continue. Oh, I was just going to say, because be, between and among countries, you can see, obviously, some similarities in law, like murder mm -hmm. is a lot in, yes. in pretty much 
to, to my knowledge, every every state that exists out there. Yeah. But um, different states approach um, protections for employees, you know, who work for large mm-hmm. corporations or taxes or all mm-hmm. other sorts of things. Business and trade laws, mm-hmm. for example, um, and there's they're they're different in in important and substantial ways. So and that that does reflect on a society, its mm-hmm. principles and sort of where it's trying to order the society to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely agree. I completely agree. Francis, this this has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a lot. I've uh, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I wish we could do this in person. But uh, I'm glad the technology is there to at least do it. Uh, from a distance. I am as well. I'm so honored that you offered the invite. And I'm so glad that we, we got to talk. And I look forward to talking again in the future, uh, exchanging ideas about work, and perhaps a meeting if I can make it over uh, to England. Absolutely. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Francis. Take care. Thank you so much, Tressa. And that was Francis. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. And I'm actually curious to know what you guys think. Is it always better to be self-taught or is it always better to have someone that teaches you when is it better to be self-taught and when is it better to take the knowledge that someone has accumulated over time and uh, work with that? Let us know in the comment section and I'll be responding to them. Until then, bye-bye.